All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we want to go ahead and get started. My name is Dan Mitchell. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato, where I futilely try to hold back the tide of big government. Uh, it's my honor today to uh, be the, the MC of uh, this event. We're going to have Michelle Caruso Cabrera talking about her book, You Know I'm Right. I actually, when I first saw the title, I thought, oh, my God, it's about my ex-wife. Uh, but no, no. I, I actually have already introduced Michelle once uh, at a Cato event up in Vermont, and so she's hearing all these stale jokes uh, for a second time. Uh, you all probably know Michelle already. You see her on CNBC every Monday to Friday from 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock. Uh, but that's just being a journalist. And, of course, at Cato, we sort of sometimes think, oh, journalists, what do they know? Well, it turns out Michelle actually has an economics degree, which puts her way ahead of most journalists, even though she got it at Wellesley, and she probably had to unlearn everything that they taught her <laughs> in order to understand how markets really work. But considering that Wellesley has turned out products like Madeleine Albright and Hillary Clinton, uh, we definitely are seeing a positive development in terms of some of the younger graduates. Uh, you know what the definition of a good book is? It's one that I agree with. <laughs> you want to know what the definition of a great book is? One that actually cites me. And, and indeed, I do show up a couple of times in the book, which, of course, made me think it must be very good. You know, in Washington, everyone in Washington who's involved in policy, anytime a policy book comes out, we don't read it. We go back to the index and see if our name is there. Uh, so, uh, so I was very glad to see that I, I made the cut, as did some of my Cato colleagues, which, again, is the definition of, uh, of what makes a book good. Before having Michelle come up to talk about her book and some of her reflections on uh, life as a journalist with some policy uh, expertise, uh, I thought I would touch on two things in the book that uh, I thought really do indicate that it is a substantive work that gets things right. Uh, one is on health care, and one is on government spending, fiscal policy. Everyone in the health care field whether they're right-wing, left-wing, libertarian, statist, everyone says, oh, health care costs are rising too high. And on the left, people say, well, we just need some higher taxes to finance that health care. On the right, people say we need to somehow cut government spending on health care. But very few people actually identify what is the driving force in that. And what's the driving force in higher health care costs is third-party payment. And so when I read Michelle's chapter on health care, I was so happy to see that she actually recognized the underlying economics that are messing up our health care system. I wish we could trade you for about 15 Republican congressmen, because to the extent that they even pay attention to health care, they certainly don't get what's actually the underlying problem. After all, we saw Bush expand third-party payment with the prescription drug program, and then Obama just expanded third-party payment with what he did. The example I always use in this area is look at, say, hospital costs and how they're always rising, and how they're always rising much faster than inflation. And, of course, with hospital costs, third-party payment is completely prevalent. And then look at something where people actually pay out of pocket for their own health care, such as laser eye surgery. And what do we know about laser eye surgery? Every year, it seems, costs come down and quality goes up. So where consumers are actually in charge and spending their own money, we see the free market works. But when you have third-party payment, generally because of government intervention, but also because of government distortions through the tax code for this over-insurance uh, that we have, uh, then you see that people don't really care what things cost, and as a result, uh, expenses rise at a much faster rate than inflation. 
And then the other thing I wanted to touch on, just I don't, I, hopefully I'm not treading on the things you're going to mention, but these are the two things that really uh, uh, appealed to me in the book. The other thing that appealed to me was directly on what I work on, fiscal policy. Everyone in Washington, just like they sort of get wrong the economics of health care, everybody gets wrong fiscal policy in that they say deficits, 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 debt, debt, debt. And Michelle says, okay, that's important, but those are the symptoms. The underlying problem is the rising burden of government spending. And again, if I had a dollar for every time I've wanted to cry because people who are supposed to be my friends in Washington are focusing on the symptom rather than the underlying disease, I'd be wealthy. Unfortunately, I work at a think tank. I'm not wealthy, <laughs> but at least I can be happy that we have an ally in the world of journalism. Let me bring up Michelle Caruso Cabrera. Or are you just going to talk here? Oh, can I talk here? Well, you can talk here. I feel much safer behind a desk. (laughs) You're the boss. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. I see some familiar faces here. Um, Great introduction, Dan. Thanks so much. A couple things about the book. I wrote it because I just wanted to... I get so frustrated sometimes. Uh, So many things that I want to say. And I really don't have a form to say them because it's not appropriate necessarily for me to be doing that at CNBC. Um, And I think this crowd would appreciate that I dedicate the book to uh, three people or institutions, my parents, Wellesley College, and Milton Friedman, the three greatest influences on my life. Uh, And I'm very thankful to CNBC because what other network in the world will let you go interview a 90-plus-year-old economist and put it on TV four days in a row and um, nobody else would? And they fought me a little bit because they said, wow, He's kind of elderly at this point. Do you think he'll make good television? He got great ratings. We ran it over four days. And uh, it was such an influential moment in my life because I went out there to interview him about school vouchers. And he said, I'll give you 20 minutes. Uh, And we sat for two hours. And by the time it was all done, we had a a whole segment on insider trading. We had a whole segment on healthcare. We had a whole segment on education. Um, It was really fantastic and uh, influenced me in so many ways. Uh, so there's three things that I really say. Four things. I, I give my my view of history. Um, I get very frustrated under the current discussion. The policies of the last administration, lack of regulation, are what brought us here. And I think to myself, well, policies of the last administration, except it was too much regulation, too much intervention, and too much spending. So I, I try to rewrite my history in the way that I see it and that I think is a more accurate portrayal compared to the narrative that I hear on TV a lot. Um, I tackle immigration and health care, which I think are three huge issues, um, and also health care reform, which I spend a lot of time on. Opening line for me in the health care chapter, I think you would appreciate this, Dan, is we buy our own car insurance, we buy our own life insurance, we should buy our own health insurance. Costs would be dramatically lower. It would be far more accessible. And I compare it to, I, I think we ought to look at health care. You talk about LASIK surgery. I think of the wireless industry. I think back on when telephones were a monopoly, when governments all over the world thought landlines were so important and crucial they were going to make sure everybody got one. And, of course, they basically made sure almost nobody got one, especially in the developing world. I can remember being a child, my mother telling me, shh, don't tell anybody at school we have two phones because 
you had to pay extra at the time, and there were all these rules, and she had figured out how to jigger the phone lines, and I don't know if she bought one at a yard sale or something, but we had two phones, and it was a secret. Um, <laughs> so years go by, and thank goodness uh, governments around the world didn't feel it necessary that everybody should get wireless phones. I, th I think they saw them as a luxury, or finally they viewed privatization as better, but now nearly everybody has a wireless phone. When I traveled to Latin America, I used to work at Univision, and the poverty that I saw there, even the poorest individuals in Latin America can get a cell phone now and can communicate, and it's, it's wonderful, and that is driven by intense competition, not because government decided they were all going to have phones. Um, so I, I wish we looked at healthcare that way, and I think we'd be uh, in a lot better position. Uh, immigration, you know, I can cite four reasons that I think immigration is really great for America. Google, eBay, Yahoo, and Sun Microsystems, they were all founded by immigrants. And, and aren't we so glad to be able to say they were founded here rather than somewhere else? Or would they have been founded at all if those people had been living somewhere else in the world? Um, and then education, uh, of course, deeply influenced by Milton Friedman and vouchers. And I asked the simple question, who do you trust more, your mother or a government bureaucrat when it comes to your education? And I, I try to lay it out very simply about why we should have choice, individual choice and individual responsibility is the message that I try to send throughout the, uh, the book. And then just we remind people that we don't need all these government agencies that we think we need. Of course we need a Department of Energy. No, there's no of course. No, we don't. Um, so I, that's, that's the crux of the book. If you, I hope you read it. If you like it, let me know. If you don't like it, let me know. If you like it, tell friends. Um, and I would love to take as many questions as possible. I get a lot of questions about TV and my thoughts and anything else. Is that all right? If we go into right, questions? Well, let me go ahead and, and uh, abuse my position as moderator Excellent. to ask the uh, first question. And you were sort of asked this question at our event up in Vermont, uh, but I'd like you to flesh it out a little bit. You obviously deal with a lot of politicians on the air. And when you were talking about the education issue, uh, this, this is one of these issues where I assume there's almost no legitimacy to the other side's position uh, in the sense that I, it's just the teachers' unions trying to protect a monopoly. And if you actually cared about the education of kids, you'd want to figure out some way to open up the current system uh, to competition so that these kids that are getting a terrible education in the government monopoly schools would have an option. When you deal with politicians, to what extent do you think they actually get it? Uh, to what extent are they just playing interest group politics? We don't care about the kids because we're getting all these contributions from the NEA. Uh, are, are politicians as bad as we sometimes think they are? I guess is the big picture question. And then the narrow question is, because you have this interest in education, you've covered it, uh, how would you analyze the, uh, the, the state of play on that specific issue? Well, I think we're at a wonderful moment, actually, with this Waiting for Superman. And I felt even before Waiting for Superman came out that we were at this moment where even though politicians didn't want to criticize the teachers' unions out loud, privately they were at the point where they felt that they were going to start losing their constituency to the other side because parents are so frustrated with the school system and their inability to affect change unless they can move to a really expensive neighborhood or unless they have money and they can pay for private school. Um, so I am actually more hopeful about education than anything else because finally the American people have said we have had it. 
they're pointing, they're also pointing their finger at the teachers' union, who I think have lost their moral trump card, uh, which was always, oh, you, if you want to cut education spending, you're, you're going to hurt the children. And a lot of parents have turned around and said, that's not true. It's why is it that you're getting benefits that nobody else gets? Why is it that you're getting salaries that nobody else gets? So I, I really think we're at a moment where things could change. And so you think the politicians are oh, yeah. on the verge of actually breaking with the union? I don't know that they'll say that out loud, but I'll bet there's uh, – my sense is there's, there's got to be some backroom pushback to say we're going to lose votes, and that's a problem, <laughs> you know? I, I really do. I, I think they've lost the, the the unions have lost their legitimacy on this point. Okay. Well, we want to go ahead and throw this open to to the audience. Uh, I guess there and up there. And I guess if you could just identify yourself briefly, and of course keep questions relatively concise as well. Right. My name is. My name is Michael Zack. I wrote a history of the GOP called Back to Basics for the Republican Party. My question is, what policy suggestions do you have for actually cutting the size of government rather than pointing out that it's bad? Oh, um, well, I mean, there's the four departments that I think a lot of people already are kind of in agreement that could just go away, commerce, labor, education, energy, just get rid of them. Um, and then, of course, you've got to attack entitlements. And I am a big advocate of personal accounts and telling young people now, I, I don't like coercion on any front, but if, if we're going to force people to save, at least let them save it for themselves so that way government doesn't spend it in the meantime and then, you know, 20 years down the road, tell them, sorry, there isn't any money for you. Um, and then that way, if you had a, a personal account, I think the other thing is that you could hand it off to your children because right now a lot of people die and they don't ever even get their first social security check. And so that's money that they've put in and have and, – and, and, and the actual actuarial tables bear out. It's a very sad fact that the poorer you are, you tend to die younger. And so as a result, you're far less likely to ever get a check. And so by default, you end up subsidizing wealthier individuals in society. But I think we should have more personal control um, it's going to be enormous costs up front when it comes to Social Security, when it comes to Medicare. If we were to ever do that, I'm not very hopeful. Um, but, you know, you make those implicit costs explicit now. And I actually think places like the bond market would embrace that if we, you know, had a light at the end of the tunnel instead of this kind of uncertain future about what we're going to do with it. And the way I've always thought about it is that the transition cost of moving to a system of personal accounts is large, but the transition cost of bailing out the current system is even larger. Worse, right. Um, next question. I guess the guy in the back row had his hand up first, then we'll come up uh, one row. Uh, uh, wait for There's the a microphone. microphone. Other side. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this is Darlow, both a retired engineer, and I have two-part question. Uh, what is the role of government and my, my answer is to protect the citizens and maintain civil order and all kinds of things like that. But it has to be defined before you can say how much government is yep. much. Uh, zero government? Zero? No. No, we need some government. Free? Hmm? Do you want to make it totally free? No government at all? No. Anarchy? No. No, I'm not into anarchy. <laughs> so how are we going to establish a size? 
if it's not zero. Well, I don't, I don't know that you establish size. I think you establish the mission, right? I, you know, the four basics, co foster competitive markets, maintain law and order, you know, defend. Go ahead. Did you, you, you wanted to ask me another question? I see you kind of interjecting. No? <laughs> Well, I think that's I think that's up to individuals, and, and that's up to a society to get together and and, and figure those things out. Mm -hmm. Very good question. I, I, very tough. I, I I would start with let's just roll back some of the things that we know government shouldn't do in the first place. He's dissatisfied with my answer. Um, but that's all I got for you. Go ahead. Okay, uh, one row up. My name's Terrence Byrne. I enjoy your show on TV. I'm unaffiliated now. I'm retired from the Department of State. Uh, my question's about uh, health care reform. What do you see as the role of tort reform, malpractice rationalization as a means of lowering medical costs? I, I don't write about tort reform uh, in the book. I'll say, I, I, you know, medical malpractice conceptually, actually, I don't have a big issue with it. I think it advocates personal responsibility. I think what's happened is there's a lot of class action junk that happens where, uh, you know, because you live 10 doors down from a guy who had a cousin who worked with asbestos, you can now apply to be part of the class action lawsuit. And there's got to be reworkings there. I'm not an expert in legal issues. I see the problem. I'm not convinced that that's where the greatest cost comes from or that it would be an enormously tremendous savings. I think that the biggest driver of cost is when you disconnect the user from the actual product, the payer from the actual product. In terms of the uh, business community, and then the next question will be right here. In terms of the business community, you interview a lot of these executives all the time. Uh, broadly speaking, do they think government's become too big? Do they see that there's some imperative, not just general rhetoric, but do they, do they think it's imperative to try to uh, rein in the size of government? I don't know if they talk so much about the size of government as an interventionist government. Uh, that's you know meddling with business and disrupting their ability to hire and to run the business as they see fit, which they think would lead to more job creation. Mm -hmm. That's where I hear. I, I don't hear them conceptually talk about size so much because I think they're they're looking at it from their vantage point. I used to be able to do this, now I can't. That kind of thing. Um, so no, they don't talk much about size. Right. A lot of them, in fact, encourage they want to you know they want a tax break for their business mm -hmm. frequently. Uh, hi, I'm Mark Granis. I'm a libertarian candidate for Congress, and that's where my question's coming from. I want to pick up on the first thing you said, which was that you wrote this book out of frustration for being unable to say things like this you know, on the air, and that's you know, perfectly understandable. But I guess I wanted to, to ask why it is that even people who are more appropriately addressing uh, subjects like this have so much trouble breaking through in the electronic media. You know, when the Republicans happen to be out of power, some of these free market ideas get picked up by them, and then we hear about them. When the Republicans are in power, it's very hard for free market conservatives or free market liberals who are trying to push these same ideas to get any coverage and to break through sort of the D versus R 
narrative that sort of writes itself for, for people in the media. So I guess I, as a journalist, I'm wondering if you would care to comment on that narrative and how it sucks all the air out of the uh, free market liberalism movement. I mean, even places like Cato, you can always come and you can find these ideas, but, but even a lot of places that are talking a lot about free market conservatism right now shut up when there are Republicans in power who are violating all these principles. So how is it that we can get, how can we get to a media that covers more of this all the time? Um, and actually, uh, during the big government Bush years, some think tanks like Cato were very solid defending the principles of freedom. Some of our other friends around town were not quite as good. I'll just leave it at that. I don't have an answer for you. Um, I, the introduction of the book is how frustrated I am that I feel like there's no party to turn to. You know, I want a government that stays out of my pocketbook and out of my private life is my opening line. And neither party can answer both of those. Um, Neither of the two major parties, parties, which is what drives the narrative, for better or for worse. Um, And I don't know. I mean, I think, don't you think we've seen some of it already, this kind of holistic grassroots movement that started? People are so frustrated. Um, So, I mean, if ever we were close to it, I think... Now, and I think there's been something, you know, we're starting to see changes at the primary level where you don't, I think a lot of this is driven by the primary system, right, where you're going to energize the base on either side, and so you go to those issues that, you know, drive voters who will come out for the primaries, even though it's not a presidential election. Um, I think if we see changes there, it'll get better, and I think also that the um, electorate has really spoken so far, even before some of the elections, to uh, say, you know, we're tired. I'm hopeful about that, actually. Another question in the front. Thank you. Um, my name is Annabelle Fisher. I, I guess I consider myself an independent, but I'm also a professionally trained clinician who has worked in healthcare and mental health. Mitchell, I think you should be on the uh, John Stewart show. I think you'd be great. Oh, thank you. No, Mitchell. Mitchell. Oh, Dan should be on the show. <laughs> right. Yeah. I get promoted. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I, I'm not going to get into a healthcare question. I'm going to. I do believe we need to reform, and I'm. I'm I want to ask you a question about um, – I'm going to follow up on the gentleman's question in the back. Uh, the, four, the, the four government agencies that you would like to see yeah. uh, gone, mm-hmm. one of them being the Department of Education. Mm-hmm. EOE is, everyone knows, messed up. However, mm-hmm. if you want to see government reformed or changed and you want the masses to do it, you're going to have tyranny and anarchy. So do you think – we are ready for, this in this country, a third party. And if so, what would that third party be and who would lead it? And it was tried a long time ago. I remember living in Seattle when Ross Perot was trying and nothing happened. So with the, and I do believe there's anger out there outside of D.C., and you policy wonk folks who write policy aren't out in the street doing the real work that I do and know what's happening and are make, trying to make things happen and don't have the contacts or connections to say, here's how you can save some money. Here's what you can do that won't cost a lot of money. Uh, Social Security's not going anywhere. I'm paying 70% of my taxes for elected officials and whatever, health care. Uh-huh. So what do you think, one, the payroll taxes should be uh, stopped for two years to take care of the deficit? And two... If there is a changeover in the election in Congress, 
will those folks be sucked into the system when they're elected and the same thing will keep going and they will continue with once they're going to try i mean i i believe people when they're first elected go in with good intentions but then he gets sucked into raising money i got to keep being reelected mm. i'm i'm a big believer in term limits but you know you what? got a lot of questions in there before you ask more i don't want to forget them how are you, <laughs> you going to change a system that you want to see changed with the masses doing it and their leadership um well, for, uh, for, are we ready for a third party? I'm not so sure. Um, I'm not convinced. I, if certain parties actually stuck to what they said they were for, we wouldn't necessarily need one. Um, I, raise, I have the same worries that you have about once they get into office. Milton Friedman said the same thing to me. He says, doesn't matter what party they are. A politician wants to spend your money. That's what they want to do. I do take uh, I, I take issue with one of your assumptions, which is say we get rid of Department of Education, we have anarchy. I actually, don't think so. I mean, it's um, you could easily go to federal government has never been in charge of education in the United States, and their intervention into education is actually extremely recent. It was always very local, um, and if you had school vouchers, the ultimate arbiter would be parents, and, and the market would tell you immediately who is failing. So I don't think there would be anarchy at all, actually. I think it would be powerful. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right, right. Well, 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 well uh, my Cato colleague, Chris Edwards, points out, he's a Canadian, that Canada has never had a federal Department of Education at all. It's completely a provincial matter. And prior to uh, Jimmy Carter, we had no federal Department of Education. So, or energy. Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think there'd be a, a challenge. Uh, but, but I do want to follow up that question uh, by focusing on this issue of what happens if the GOT takes power. I asked you before a very critical question about Democrats. Are they really just not caring about kids because they care about the uh, money from the NEA? Do Republicans not care at all about controlling government and they just use this rhetoric until the election's over? Certainly if you look at the Bush years, it doesn't give you any feeling for optimism that if they get power, they'll actually control government. But is this different? Is there something about the Tea Party, the current environment where you think they would actually follow through? I don't know. I, I, my only thought is we hear them now say, look, we've learned because you fired us last time. So we get it. I'm not so convinced. I know that if the bond market ever turns on them, that will take care of everything because then they'll really have to face up to what they've done and they'll have to make some hard choices. I hope it never comes to that. But uh, I'm not convinced. But now when you're actually interviewing these people, I assume mm -hmm. you get a sense who's just trying to snow you with rhetoric, and who actually has some... Not really. They're all smooth. They're all smooth. <laughs> They're very smooth. They're very... A lot of them are very, very smart. Barney Frank, very, very smart individual. I think one of the smartest members of Congress. Actually, since you raised that, uh, share with this crowd the anecdote uh, you uh, told us in Vermont about uh, Hugo Chavez. How did you get from Barney French? <laughs> uh, I was thinking of some big government thug. Um, I, was, I was telling my, uh, my two most interesting interviews I think I've ever done, uh, Milton Friedman, very influential on me, and also Hugo uh, Chavez, because when I interviewed him, I was struck by how much I like him. He's very funny. 
He is so charming. He is smooth. He could be a stand-up comedian. He is a seductor, um, as I suspect most dictators are. That's how they get to where they are. Um, and in that sense, I got, a, I, got, I got a very clear sense of how dangerous I think he is because um, clearly what's happening in Venezuela, my, my mother's Cuban. They, my family left Cuba for a reason. I see what ha- what's happening in Venezuela is very similar to what happened in Cuba. It's terrible. Poverty's on the rise. Inflation's on the rise. People are suffering. Um, but he can win you over. I mean, it's, it's very, very impressive. Um, so that, that was... Uh, it, it reminded me of, actually, serial killers that I interviewed in Florida. Um, they're very, very charming. They're seductors, right? That's how they get with, where they're going to go. Um, and so there's a lot of similar qualities there to their personalities. Mm, I wonder how far we can take that analogy. No. <laughs> Done there. Front row. Thank you very much. My name is Todd Wiggins. I have a, a local blog about urban planning. I'm interested in your experience as an interviewer. Um, do you try to persuade people to think a certain way? And do you find that you go into most interviews with your own set of principles and doctrines in which you try to market yourself to that person? And do you find that there's a juxtaposition between two different... I don't, I don't try to persuade, no, but what I, what I just try to always be aware of is... Uh, underlying assumptions that people take as eternal truths, which aren't necessarily eternal truths. So we have on somebody who runs an education company, and he says, well, nobody would argue with subsidizing education. So, well, actually, you know what? There are people who argue that you shouldn't subsidize education because it just makes it more expensive for the middle class, um, and it would actually be far more affordable for everyone if you didn't. Um, so it's, it's about questioning assumptions, uh, more than anything, that I that I find it to be helpful. Um, no one would argue with minimum wage. So actually, there are people who would argue about the minimum wage. Um, so that's where I I try to to go with it. Sure. I also want to know: Do you have an ideal in mind and an archetype? When do you think of? an example of how government should be run and compare it to, say, some other place in which it's done best? And do you have a, your favorite country versus your the worst-case scenario and, and try to make comparisons? Uh, I really like Chile. Uh, like when I see what they've done with water down there, we just did a water documentary, and we went down there, and they've got, when, it, when you compare it to the rest of Latin America, the uh, urban populations, who has access to water, um, compared to the rest of Latin America, is so much better. So I've got a lot of admiration for them. I, I think the U.S. still is uh, pretty darn good compared to the rest of the world when it comes to liberty. I'd still say that we're right up there in our ability to express ourselves and to ultimately lead the lives that we want to lead. Have you, for, for CNBC, have you ever gone to Hong Kong? Yep. And what was your impression? Oh, I didn't go. I, I went on vacation. Okay. I didn't go for, for work. Um, I loved its energy. I went as a tourist, as opposed to when you you know when you go as a journalist, you meet uh, policymakers and business people, and so you you get a better sense of the inner workings as opposed to um, when I went to Hong Kong. I went to Hong Kong right after SARS because uh, you wear a face mask. No, <laughs> uh, but uh, it was really cheap. It was one thousand dollars for both me and my ex husband to go a round trip and a six nights hotel. 
it was really, really cheap. So I said, I'll never get to Hong Kong that cheap. I might as well go right now. So you could roll a bowling ball in the lobby of the hotel, but it was, uh, it was fine. SARS was over. And, and you survived. Yeah, I'm right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other questions? I guess uh, there, there, and there. There. Thank you. Always enjoy you. Um, I wanted to ask, you talked a little bit about the uh, the teachers' unions, and I think um, I have heard some comments lately on air about employee, uh, government employee unions in general, yep. states and localities, and I think we may be at a, a break point there where people are starting to come to the realization. I wonder if you could expand on that. I, I think you're right. I think we are at a breaking point when – there's just been enough stats out there and people see enough data points and they say, wait a minute, when they, when they hear, for example, and I'm sure this is an extreme example, but it happens, you know, in New Jersey, guy retires at 49, contributed $124,000 to his retirement benefits, but he's going to cost the state of New Jersey $3.3 million before it's all said and done. You know, the average person can say, understands that math doesn't work. Um, and I think the recession also... Um, when, when people were getting laid off left and right, um, and the number of government workers has gone down during the recession, I realize that, but they, they suffered a lot less pain comparatively. Um, when people are losing their health care benefits because they've lost their job, but they know that some government workers, many government workers, aren't footing any of their health care costs, uh, but the taxpayer is, I think we've really gotten to a moment. I think the recession really has brought that around because you have to start making some very hard choices and people don't want to forego trash collection. They don't want to hear there's fewer police officers on the street and then they ask why. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think again, we're at a moment. I guess uh, there first and then over there. Uh, yes, uh, Richard Kennedy. I'm a retired CIA economic analyst and also someone who was greatly influenced by Milton Friedman. Uh, Despite your last name. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sure everybody uses that joke on you. Starting <laughs> uh, even in the 1960s when he began arguing for an all-volunteer army Yeah. and then later had the pleasure of meeting him in grad school. My question is uh, another issue that he has espoused in the last several decades of his life. It's also near and dear to Cato's heart. Uh, which is drug policy, and I wondered if you would ever uh, thought or address that. And it's not only a policy that's very intrusive of individual rights, but it's not even a rational policy in the way that it's applied in the sense that two very dangerous drugs, alcohol and tobacco, are totally sure. illegal, and a whole lot of less dangerous substances will get you thrown in jail. So just wondered if it's something that you would ever thought about. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um... When it's come up on CNBC, it's come up only uh, a lot recently because we've done a uh, documentary on pot, uh, which breaks ratings records every time it's on, by the way. Um, You know, I've talked about it a couple times on air. It doesn't really come up, though. I mean, we're a business network, and until it is legalized, I think we probably won't end up discussing it very much. But sure, I mean, I think to me it's an uh, a-duh. But but what about the prospect that Mexico could become a failed state because our criminalization prohibition policies are making the drug trade so profitable that it's corrupting the entire country almost, and that has to have implications for a 
you know, for cross-border trade and regional stability and things like that. I guess I see Mexico as a potential failed state is I always attribute it to exaggeration by the media. <laughs> I, I've traveled to Mexico a lot, and I don't actually feel that unsafe there. And I, I guess I also always assume that um, a lot of the, the violence is on the drug routes and among drug dealers, and there absolutely are innocent lives lost. Um, but... Um, I guess I'm not asking in the sense... But I, but I understand the spirit of your question, which is it, it's still a business issue. Um, it's come up some, and but I don't think it's gotten to the point where it's that dramatic yet. Um, but it could, absolutely. It's a very absolutely uh, justifiable point to make. Yeah. And there? I'm Jeff Poor with the Media Research Center. Oh, hi. How are you doing? <laughs> you talk a little bit about how you fit in at CNBC as the Libertarian. I know CNBC has kind of been a hotbed over the last couple of years with Rick Santelli. And yeah, with the Tea Kramer Party, yeah. Mix uh-huh. up with the, the White House and stuff. And yeah. It seems to have died down a little bit. But just as from your political point of view and the others there, how, how's the dynamic going these days? It's great. Um, I don't think things have ever been better. You know, we have a lot of intellectual, vigorous intellectual discussion on the air. And I I love it. I think it's some of the best television that's out there. And we have so many differing viewpoints that we all bring about. I I just love it. There's a, it's a great moment for us. I really think so. I think we have a great team. I can't tell you how much I love working at CNBC. My, um, where I grew up, uh, the house where my parents still live, we have a huge satellite dish in the front yard still because my father wanted a satellite dish so he could watch the financial news network, FNN, uh, because FNN had a new technology back then. It was the ticker. So he didn't have to drive down to Charles Schwab and stand in the lobby and watch it go by, and he didn't have to wait until it was in the paper the next day. Um, so I've been watching FNN, which was the precursor to CNBC, since I was in junior high. And uh, my grandfather watched it when I told my grandfather I was interviewing at CNBC, he said, you are? That's my favorite channel. <laughs> and uh, when I interviewed at CNBC, I, came, I called my dad first thing. And he didn't ask how did it go. He didn't ask, did you get the job? He asked, did you meet Bill Griffith, which is one of the anchors at the time. I was like, yeah, I did. I was really excited. It was like meeting a star, you know, because he is a star. Um, so it's great. I love it. And, I, you know, I think, you know, we are the voice of the shareholder. That's the way I see it. Journalists are always taught that they're the voice of the voiceless. And so that leads to coverage decisions in certain ways. And it, and it drives our coverage decisions. Um, you know, what, is, what does the individual shareholder need that, um, you know, big shareholders always have a voice. The little shareholder doesn't. Okay, any, any other questions? Paul, in the front row. Hi, Paul. I'm employed by the federal government. You mentioned true confessions. <laughs> you mentioned that you were optimistic about the country and our state as compared with the rest of the world. Yeah. Having glanced at the Communist Manifesto uh-huh. earlier this week, Why? I see that of the ten planks, the U.S. has arguably seven, perhaps eight, firmly in place. Could you comment? <sighs> <laughs> I haven't read the Communist Manifesto in a long time, <laughs> maybe since college. Um, I don't. Uh, I think in the end that we are a nation that very much believes in the individual 
and the individual's ability to decide. And I think that makes us nearly fundamentally different from everywhere else in the world. And uh, when, when push comes to shove, I think the average American understands that intuitively. And so that's, that's why I'm optimistic. I think plank number two was the progressive income tax. I'm doing my best to try to uh, undo yes. that one, Paul. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, okay. We, we're provoking a response. Credit in control of the government, the Federal Reserve Board. Actually, that, that, that education in control of the government. Let me try to focus that on something that we just saw in the newspaper this morning that presumably you're going to be talking about uh, uh, for the next several weeks. The Fed supposedly is on the verge of a massive new burst of quantitative easing, or as someone like me would call it, more easy money policy. Uh, it, it seems like bad fiscal policy of Keynesianism hasn't worked, so now we're going to do bad 1970-style monetary policy of easy money. Um, do these guys really believe it? Oh, I think they do. Absolutely. I think they absolutely believe. So we're just going to push on that strength yep. until the economy gets uh, going. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't write about monetary policy in here, and I... Um, to me, it's such a big subject that it's something that I still feel like I haven't spent enough time reading enough about or thinking enough about to make um, sharp decisions about. I, you know, the one thing I do see is that very cheap money, I know, hurts the elderly uh, tremendously because they live on fixed incomes. Um, so I, I see a lot more of the downside of cheap money than I think a lot of people are willing to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. um, but, but they absolutely believe in it. Now, you do have a chapter about Fannie and Freddie. Mm -hmm. We haven't touched on that. We're getting close to lunch, but uh, certainly no Cato event should go by with <laughs> Fannie and Freddie. Um, <laughs> I would, yeah, obviously, I don't think Fannie and Freddie should exist. Uh, I think the private market would do uh, fine uh, picking up the slack if they ever went away. My favorite chapter, my favorite thing in the Fannie Freddie chapter, though, is actually... I. I Towards the end, I talk about the FHA and how the you know the government doesn't learn. Uh, so Fannie and Freddie's struggling, so the FHA has picked up some of the slack. And so the, the housing bubble has burst. We know subprime is a problem. And the New York Times goes out and interviews, after all that's said and done, people who have received recent FHA loans. And the quotes are phenomenal. 28-year-old kid in Ohio tells the New York Times reporter, I can't believe I pulled that one off. I knew I didn't deserve the loan, and if I lose my job, I'm going to be out of the house in a month. I can't believe I pulled it off. That's one of the quotes. I mean, literally, I'm, 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 you know, I don't remember word for word, but I'm pretty darn close. And then uh, another woman, I think she's in um, Colorado. She had, she had lost one home already um, to foreclosure, and she, she wanted to buy a home. She was struggling to get a mortgage. Um, so she cashed in every asset she had. She used every bit of savings that she had, and the FHA gave her a loan. And she thought that it was absolutely justified that the taxpayer take a risk on her. Um, but nobody would ever, you know, in private industry, no analyst, no certified financial planner would ever tell an individual, use every dime you have to throw it into one asset that could lose its value. But the federal government was enabling her to do that. And she thought it was a great idea, and so do they. 
Um, so that's the, it, I guess what struck me was that they, never, they, don't, they still don't learn on that front. Or, or maybe they've learned all too well. Do we have time for one or two more questions? I guess uh, we'll let that gentleman go first, and, and since we'll let, I guess we'll take two more then after that. Mike Klauser, I'm from Harrisburg. Um, I have a question about, about his question, actually, and, and what you said. I'm, I'm not a communist or anything, but the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, we have seven, eight planks or something like that from the Communist Manifesto, and it seems like you guys are saying like that's a bad thing. Do you think it's a bad thing? I, like I said, I haven't read the Communist Manifesto since college. You think it's a bad thing? Yes. Yes, it's a bad thing. A bad thing. <laughs> so, some of those planks, and I'm, like I said, I'm not a communist, but uh, they were, it was 1840. Life was pretty bad. 40-hour <laughs> uh, work week, no child labor. I'm, you know, again, I'm not a liberal or anything, but give credit where credit is due. I mean, we don't have to go all the way over to the other side. There were many things, uh, democ de democracy, and, and it was written about France, Germany, and England, not the United States. You know, and m many of the policies that were argued in the Communist Manifesto were already in place in the United States. And, I mean, I, I just, so, do you think it's a bad thing? <laughs> I mean, if you, on certain specifics, the 40-hour work week, I, I think, in the end, um, Having all labor competition is what yeah. <laughs> preserves all our, our liberties and freedoms. You can change jobs. Right. If you're not happy where you are, and you need you, what you want is a government that has an economy that that instills the principles that makes an economy vibrant enough right. so that we as individuals can choose different jobs and walk away from jobs that we hate or are abusive. But the Communist Manifesto was about the process of capitalism taking away those choices by the domination of capital and capital holders over. Over the thing, and again, I'm not a communist. Okay, mm -hmm. this is American stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but 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 let me uh, to, uh, let me focus this because Milton Friedman would argue that the reason we don't have child labor anymore isn't because of the government as much as it's just become as you become a wealthier society, you right. can afford better workplace conditions, better environmental conditions, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I would agree, and. Um, I guess I, I take issue with the idea that capitalism takes away freedoms. I think it's actually the system that provides more freedom and liberty in the world than any other system. Okay, let's uh, get the last two questions uh, up there in the uh, first row of the second section. Uh, well, <laughs> first let's get uh, the people who haven't asked yet. Uh Alden Abbott, private citizen, uh, what about repeal of constitutional authority to impose an, an income, income tax uh, and also perhaps the establishment of a regulatory budget to expose the cost of regulation? You know, apropos Stigler taxation regulation, certainly uh, the, the United States got along famously before there was a federal income tax. You know, I have, I, I'm not a, a constitutional law scholar. I haven't looked at the issue enough. Um, I think in a society you need taxes because you've got to fund the government in some way, um, whether it's federal or whatever. I haven't thought about the issue enough. But we did manage to survive it. until 1913 uh, just fine. Uh, well, other than the Civil War in 1894, uh, the tax that was ultimately declared unconstitutional. It, w it is a nice goal. Uh, we had one back here, and then we'll get our gentleman to finish up. And, and the back row, I think, someone had their hand up. 
Did, did you raise your hand if you're still up? Okay, I well, then I guess... Guy. It was that guy right there with the beard. Then I guess get the guy right there, <laughs> and then we'll go to our gentleman in the other back row. I think right there next to you. You're, okay, then let's go to our friend in the back row there and finish up with him. Uh, we talk a lot about money, but uh, the Supreme Court decision said anybody can spend unlimited amounts of money and uh, on anything advocating policies without revealing his source or anything like that. And uh, I lost my opportunity to vote for McCain in 2000 because somebody spent more than my lifetime earnings to tell lies about McCain in South Carolina. Now, I, I, I'm bitter about that, but that's all right. That's, that's the, way, the way it is. How much is money, especially in view of the Supreme Court decision, that you can spend unlimited amounts and not be, and not be held accountable. How much is that going to uh, determine what the form of government, how much government, and who gets it? All right, a, a campaign finance question to uh, close everything up. I don't know if that's in your bailiwick, but... It's not really. I, I, you know, I, I've studied that uh, a little bit when the decision happened. Um, I, I mean, I guess the one thing that I think about it is... The unions spend so much money influencing government, so there's got to be some counter out there, I think, to that, because they're generally, especially uh, government employee unions, are always pushing for bigger government. So I think you need some balance out there. But I, I haven't thought enough about that to actually give you a really thoughtful answer. Okay, well then, l let me go ahead and close up with two commercials. One is John Samples here at Cato has written a lot about uh, protecting the First Amendment right to participate in the political process, so everyone should look up his work. But then, second, the more important commercial for what we're here for today, I'm sure Michelle would be happy to, uh, to sell and sign uh, some books afterwards, uh, I guess right up in the lobby level uh, where there'll be lunch. So uh, please join me in thanking her, and we will retire to the upstairs. Thank you.